Hello, 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 my friends, and welcome back to Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. If you're just joining us, I am so glad you're here. But I also feel compelled to suggest that you start at the beginning and listen through chronologically. This book was intended to be experienced, as most books are, one chapter at a time and in a fixed order. If you're enjoying yourself, might I recommend leaving a comment or telling your friends about it? If the spirit moves you, of course. Please, and thank you. Now, that's enough of that. Let's roll. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 11, Meeting with Truth. The atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these enriched ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. For this reason, we are biologically connected to every other living thing in the world. We are chemically connected to all molecules on Earth. And we are atomically connected to all atoms in the universe. We are not figuratively, but literally stardust. Neil deGrasse Tyson There was a discernible buzz around the Unity Church of Boulder in the hours leading up to Gangaji's meeting. Volunteers, including myself, scurried about arranging equipment, greeting people, directing traffic, and enthusiastically following the instructions of the volunteer coordinators. We smiled at each other, inspired to be our best selves. It felt to me like the congregants sensed their hero was in close proximity and wanted to demonstrate what good little souls they'd been, and good for them. I just hoped they were as equally committed to such generosity of spirit even when Gangaji wasn't nearby. As soon as I arrived for my volunteer shift, I put my coat on a front and center seat, thereby reserving it. Claim by coat! No one was paying me for my contributions to this world yet, but I had plenty of energy to give. Volunteering was a way for me to participate in this glorious golden network of you, me, energy, life, etc. Plus, early access seating was one of the benefits of volunteering. As the people kept rolling in and the room reached maximum capacity, I was grateful that I'd thought to snag a place early on. Soon it was time to wrap up the volunteer duties and take our seats with the burgeoning flock. Gangaji often said that she had nothing to teach us, that she was no different or more special than we were. I used to hear those kinds of statements and think, yeah, but you are different, obviously, because you're all enlightened and we're all not. But now, now I knew her message with the truth of my own glowing heart. Her words were my words, were her words were my words. Separation is an illusion. When she walked on stage, her célèbre filled the room. We were all starstruck and in love, or perhaps we were all star stuff and just love. She breezed onto the stage like the spring wind with her stylish white hair, flowing layers of clothing, radiant skin, and crutches? Her physical grace was uncompromised, but Gangaji most assuredly had a small brace on her ankle and walked with a limp. Ah, so she was human after all. I suppose that's what she'd been saying all along, but no one believed her, right? She was so at peace. She was so calm and happy and positively glowing. 
Surely this was because she was superhuman in some way. Because if she were just a regular homo sapien like the rest of us, she would be agitated and unhappy and wrinkled up, right? The logic is sound. If she were an ordinary human, and if we were ordinary humans, what could possibly explain why we weren't at peace like she was? There must be something special about her. My sarcasm is a little rusty, but I hope it came through. Gangaji, human. Buddha, human. Jesus, human. The core of their message is consistent. I am not different than you. I am not separate from you. I am you. Why, then, don't we seem to live as contentedly as Gangaji, Buddha, or Jesus? Because free will. Because we are granted the paramount privilege of living however we want and choose to live, awake or asleep, in balance or imbalanced, healthy or hurtful. Inner peace is available to us every moment of every day, but it's up to us to choose it over, well, whatever we're choosing that's not inner peace. Gangaji took her seat, and I immediately forgot about her injury. She began a silent meditation, and the peaceful energy that filled the room felt like a spiritual salve. When that part was over, Gangaji led something of an open-eye meditation. It occurred to me that when you speak quietly, people need to get quiet to hear you. I found myself thinking and feeling and knowing, this is what I was born to do too. This role of messenger, this is my job somehow as well. But you don't look anything like a guru, I said to me, internally and silently. Yeah, and if you call yourself a guru, you're not one, another part of me chimed in. Buzz off, I told both of me. When something makes your socks go up and down, you listen. Kangaji spoke for a while, and I remember her saying something I found to be funny. Naturally, I laughed. I laughed audibly and unabashedly in an otherwise silent nave, and I sensed that the other gatherers were unsure about the manners and protocol of such outbursts at church. Gangaji smiled right at me. Yes, she said, let laughter come. Laughter is a valuable language. After that, the room laughed together at regular intervals. I felt validated, and my ego sat up a little straighter. Eventually, Gangaji asked if anyone would like to come join her on stage. My hand was in the air before she finished her sentence, and she picked me almost as quickly as I'd volunteered. Okay, I thought, here we go. I ascended the stairs and sat in the chair adjacent to the star of the show. I accepted the water she offered. Do you guys ever get distracted when people who call into NPR are notably thirsty? I joked into the microphone. And oh, what a powerful thing is an amplified voice. All we need is one mic, right, Nas? I sat with Gangaji, held her hand, and thanked her for being such a well-polished mirror. I told the whole story about Marshall and how his imminent death, for all its pain, woke me up to truth. I must have talked for a good long while. I was vibing high, sharing my experiences with manifestation, golden light, and unnecessary suffering— Gangaji didn't look at me like I was crazy, which made me feel safe and honored and seen. This sense of feeling seen 
is one of life's most essential needs, and, like most essential needs, it can be met without any cash exchanging hands. Eventually, though, Gangaji indicated that there were others in the audience who she'd like to offer a chance to share. I thanked her again and found my seat. Oh, but I forgot to wish her a speedy recovery of her leg. Dag nabbit! How distracting it is to be in the company of a celebrity. One forgets one's manners entirely. Except it wasn't just her fame that had me distracted. It was the high that comes from engaging in that electric, warm feedback loop of perfect love and perfect reflection. I didn't really know Gangaji, and she didn't really know me, but we knew each other's hearts. And this knowing was such a soothing relief, such a slaking of soul's thirst, that I felt like I floated off stage when it was time for me to descend. I'd forgotten my own body, so it wasn't entirely surprising that I'd forgotten hers as well. When the satsang came to an end, there was an announcement that recordings of the gathering would be available for purchase in the back of the room or later online. I didn't want to wait in the physical line, so I decided to purchase the download later. Something inside me knew it was important to have documentation of this moment. Who knows when it might come in handy, I thought, imagining some scenario with me and my mom and revelations and rejoining. That night, I secured, quote, shelter by camping out like a stowaway without permission in Samantha and Scott's side yard, feeling the distance between us already growing. If they had stumbled upon me in my sleeping bag at any point in the middle of the night or early morning, I would have apologized and explained that I didn't want to burden them as hosts for another night. But Full disclosure, I didn't feel awesome about this particular form of shelter, and I hoped I wouldn't get caught. As I looked up at the stars, I reflected on what I'd learned about the sacred essence of shelter, among other things. A place to sleep is not like a pair of pricey Italian boots. Shelter is not an indulgence we can simply live without. So if someone you love and trust asks you to share your roof and you refuse— you're essentially casting them into darkness. Yes, we live in a world where that darkness can be mitigated by hotel rooms, but that's capitalism's answer to the problem. When someone asks for a place to stay, it means they need a place to stay. At its core, the denial of such a request, especially when it's coming from someone you love and trust, no matter what story you tell yourself about why you've issued the denial— is, in my eyes, something of a spiritual crime. This isn't to say we aren't entitled to our own boundaries. If we've had a house guest for three weeks and it's feeling like it's time for them to move on, it's okay to give our friends a polite shove-off. But to never open our door in the first place? That's fucked up if you ask me. I don't care if our cultural conditioning tells us otherwise. For my own sense of self, I decided that if anyone I trusted ever asked me to share my shelter in the future, once I had a shelter to share, I would do everything within my power to say yes. I was exhausted, and I let my eyelids get heavy. The spiritual road trip was intended to be, in part, a short-term test on shelter-specific manifestation, and all in all, I'd come out ahead. But if shelter becomes a day-to-day -day problem for months at a time, I thought, 
That is an exhausting state of being. It costs a lot of energy, at least within the confines and laws of private property, to find a new roof every night. This is one of the reasons why the, quote, homeless problem is so much bigger than the visual blight of human suffering. These humans have energy to plug into our golden network, but that energy is being spent, read, wasted, on staying warm, dry, and out of jail. I considered what tomorrow would look like, and the thought of casting out another sheltering thread in Utah felt more expensive than it was worth. If I drive the whole way to Le Grand tomorrow, I reasoned, I can crawl into Harriet Jean's place and come to a state of genuine rest. If you need reminding, genuine rest is one of the most effective ways to regenerate spiritual currency. In the universe's banking system, genuine rest is the equivalent of a deposit. So the next day, as soon as the sun came up, I threw my effects into Peaches the Prius and drove 14 hours straight, all the way home to Legrand. See? I knew I could do it if I had to.